Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 174, Innocent III. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So today's Pope is just one of those massive figures in the history of the papacy and, and indeed for really all of Western civilization. And so to break a fourth wall just a little bit here, this is such an important papacy that I've been stuck on this episode for a long time. In fact, it's been about a year between writing episode 173 about Pope Celestine and the episode today about Pope Innocent. And so I have to give the usual caveats when dealing with a massively important pope. The podcast is not enough to do justice to the entirety of his life and his impact. In fact, Horace Mann has two volumes devoted to him in his Lives of the Medieval Popes, while last week's pope got just a couple of chapters in one volume. So with all that being said, let's move on to Pope Innocent. The papacy of Innocent III is widely recognized as the high point of papal prestige and influence in medieval Europe aided by the fact that, as we heard last week, the Holy Roman Emperor had just died, leaving behind a small child as his heir. Now, we've got to talk about that. We've got to talk about canon law, about the Fourth Crusade. And on top of all of that, we get to meet one of the great saints of all time and one of the big characters in this podcast that's not a pope, St. Francis of Assisi. So this will mean a longer episode. Buckle up, get ready, here we go. Our pope today was Italian. His birth name was Lothar de Conti of Segni, and he was born in the town of Gavigno in 1160. His mother, Clarissa Sciotti, was from the same family as Clement III. His father, Trasimund of Segni, was a small-time Italian noble, though as we go along in our stories, the Segni family is about to grow in importance and will give us, in one way or another, 13 popes in the future. Lothair had two brothers and a sister, as well as a famous uncle, John of Agnani, who was the cardinal priest of San Marco. Now, Lothar studied first in Rome at a Benedictine abbey, then in Paris, which was that just then beginning to become the center of scholastic thought and theological learning, which in the 14th century is really going to bloom and blossom. The most famous of Lothar's teachers was a man named Peter the Chanter, but more famous than he were two of Lothar's classmates, Stephen Langdon and Robert of Corson. Stephen we're going to meet later on in this episode, but for now I'll say he was an English scripture scholar and the future author of the Veni Sancti Spiritus, which is the sequence we hear read each Pentecost. And Robert Corson will later become the Chancellor of the University of Paris. Now, During his time in France, Lothar went in pilgrimage to the relatively new shrine of St. Thomas Becket in Canterbury. St. Thomas, of course, we know was martyred in his conflict with King Henry II over the rights of the church against secular authority. And we will certainly be picking up this theme later on in Lothar's papacy. The scholastic thought that Lothar imbibed in Paris certainly influenced his later life. We see evidence of it in his correspondence, in the theological treaties that he composed later on, and in his handling of the Fourth Lateran Council, which we'll talk about towards the end of this episode. He loved his time in Paris. He loved it. And in particular, he loved the University of Paris. It was pretty clear that Lothar was a scholar and that scholasticism followed him in his career in the church. Lothar left Paris in 1187, and he may have spent some time studying canon law at the University of Bologna. At the same time, it appears that Pope Gregory VIII ordained him a subdeacon in Rome, and he seems to have already cultivated a reputation for being influential in ecclesiastical circles. He was made the Cardinal Deacon of San Sergio e Baco by Clement III in 1190. 
and he spent some of his time as cardinal primarily in Rome writing several theological books and continuing his study of the faith. However, we have evidence of him doing the work of a cardinal as well. His signature is affixed to many of the papal documents of Clement III and Celestine III. In January of 1198, Pope Celestine III died, and after attending the funeral of the Pope, he made his way to the Septizonium, which was a Roman temple turned fortress where the election would take place. Lothar got a majority of the votes the first time around, but not the required two-thirds. So if you remember from last episode, Celestine III wanted a certain John of St. Paul to succeed him, but the cardinals did not give in to his wishes. And in fact, one of the lessons from this that we've seen over and over is that if you're the Pope and you want to designate your successor, good luck, because the cardinals do not take kindly to that. One chronicler at the time said that every cardinal thought that they should be elected Pope this time around. And the main opposition to Lothar was that he was just so young. Celestine III had been elected when he was in his 80s. Lothar was in his late 30s during the conclave. Somehow, however, he was elected on January 8, 1198. And when the election was announced, a chronicler said that a white dove landed on Lothar's shoulder. Lothar took the name Innocent III and was soon invested with the papal regalia. After his election, however, Innocent still had to be ordained. He was only a deacon, and the traditional time for ordaining priests wasn't until Lent, so six weeks after his election, he was ordained a priest. Then on the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, he was ordained a bishop and crowned as Pope. Now, if you remember from last time, there was a conflict brewing with the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI, whose ambition was really to place all of Europe under his own jurisdiction. Part of that plan, and the part that's most important for us with the papacy, was uniting Sicily and the Holy Roman Emperor. And that would effectively sandwich the papal states between the two and threaten the independence of the papacy. If you remember, however, just before Innocent's election, Henry VI died suddenly, leaving a power vacuum and his infant son Frederick II poised to inherit his father's titles. It was a lucky break for the papacy, and Innocent took full advantage of it. Now, I won't go into the details, but two major factions took shape upon the death of Henry, which dueled for the control over Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. The majority of the Hohenstaufen supporters, which was Henry's relatives and close companions, sided with Philip of Swabia, while those opposed to the Hohenstaufen family, including Richard I of England, sided with Otto of the House of Wealth. Now, we've mentioned these two sides in the past, but it's helpful because they're going to appear more frequently going forward. So the supporters of the Hohenstaufens will in Italy get the called the Ghibellines, based off of a battle cry that they used in the past. And they will in general be more pro-imperial, while the supporter of the Welfs will be called the Guelphs, and will in general be more supporter of the Pope. And we'll hear about these two factions a lot more in a couple episodes. For now... Otto, supported by Richard I of England, moved quickly and was crowned King of the Germans in Aachen, the traditional capital, on July 12, 1198. Now, it helped that the person traditionally responsible for crowning the King of the Germans, the Archbishop of Cologne, was on his side. So that helped him with legitimacy and with seeming as actually the Holy Roman Empire. Now, Philip, of course, wasn't going to take this line down, and the two faced each other in a standoff. England sided with Otto, so naturally France, which was at war with England, sided with Philip. Now, the question, of course, arose, what did the Pope think? Only the Pope could really crown the Holy Roman Emperor, and his influence could go a long way in settling this question. Innocent tended by nature to be more sympathetic to Otto, since the past it was the Ohohenstaufen family, which was more dangerous for the papacy but he couldn't throw his weight around one way or another at first. Through a series, though, of secret letters, Innocent attempted to bring a resolution to the dispute. 
but he clearly thought Otto was stronger than he was, and the majority of princes in Germany supported him. He was wrong. Philip was in a much stronger position, even though he didn't have the legitimacy that Otto had, especially after Richard I of England died, leaving Otto without his main backer. Innocent saw the papacy and the spiritual power it had as superior to the secular power of the emperor. Since the emperor was crowned through the pope's free choice and gift, it stood to reason that the pope could help decide who the emperor was. And we've just talked for a long time, for several episodes, about the long investiture crisis in which the papacy definitively sought to assert the superiority of the spiritual power over the secular and to remove any secular influence in the appointment of bishops and priests. Now we see this logic taking further. If the spiritual power is superior, it's clear that the Pope has authority over the secular rulers. So the Pope proposed a council of the German princes, chaired by his own representatives, to help decide the question between Otto, Philip, and the infant Frederick II, the son of Henry VI. But the council never happened, because on March 1st, 1201, Innocent decided in favor of Otto publicly, and began the process of lobbying the princes of the empire on his behalf. Apparently, Innocent realized how close Otto was to falling to apart altogether, so he decided to prop him up and make sure the church-friendly candidate was chosen to be emperor. Now, Philip, of course, protested, but he was excommunicated, and Innocent began to call the bishops of Germany to Rome to admonish them to support Otto. The bishops began to respond to the pressure and to switch sides. The, the tipping point came in December of 1202, when Philip's chancellor, Conrad of Würzburg, switched sides. Now, for that offense, he was murdered by some of Philip's partisans, and though Philip paid, played no role in the murder and was never charged for it, the people of Germany were pretty disgusted, so they st decided to start switching sides en masse to Otto. Now, over the next couple of years, Innocent continued to lobby hard for Otto, especially through the bishops of the empire, but things continued to shift back and forth between the two. There was a period of time when Innocent was quite sick and Otto looked like he might lose, but then the Pope recovered and then went back to work for Otto's cause. Philip began to see that he had to turn to the Pope to plead his own side, but he was assassinated himself in June of 1208 by a disgruntled noble. And after that, Otto reconciled with the Hohenstaufen side, was elected by all the German princes in Frankfurt, and set things up to get crowned by Innocent III as Holy Roman Emperor. Innocent required that Otto promise to return northern Italian territories which had belonged to the papacy, which is the promise that basically every Pope makes the Emperor take. And... Otto dutifully promised that. So that cleared things up for Otto. And lest you feel bad for the infant Frederick II, you shouldn't, because at this time, technically, the Holy Roman Emperor was elected. And he could be elected by the German princes, and it didn't necessarily have to fall from father to son in one family. And so Otto was good to go. He came to Rome in October of 1209 and was crowned Holy Roman Emperor. But it turns out that Otto was not that great of an emperor. He angered most of the German princes right away and angered the Pope as well, almost right away by breaking his promises he had just made. Then in November of 1209, he decided that it would be a good idea to plan an invasion of Sicily. Now, if you remember, one of the main reasons Innocent didn't want a Hohenstaufen emperor was because he didn't want Sicily joined with the Holy Roman Empire. So now instead he backed Otto and now Otto is doing exactly the same thing that the papacy didn't want. It really put the squeeze on the papal states, and so this move is just the sort of thing to really drive Innocent crazy. So Innocent excommunicated Otto, and this coincided with a rebellion by the German princes, led by two key archbishops and supported by Innocent. Mindful of his weaknesses back in Germany, Otto had to abandon Italy and return home, but his position was really no longer secure at all. Again, with Innocent's support, the young Frederick II, who by this point was 18 years old, 
was starting to move in on Otto's place. Now, we haven't been talking too much about Frederick, but after the sudden death of his father, Henry VI, and the death of his mother, Constance, the Queen of Sicily, in 1198, he was actually entrusted to Pope Innocent III to be raised, and Innocent served him as his guardian. So during this time, he entrusted him to one of his cardinals, Sensio Savelli, who tutored Frederick, and later he was taken captive by two different Italian noblemen who seen the power vacuum in Sicily, with such a young boy, nominally the king, competed to rule the country as regents. Which brings us back to the present, where with innocent support, Frederick II was crowned king of the Germans to counter the now excommunicated Otto. Frederick's forces, supported by the French and papal prestige, defeated Otto's at a battle in July of 1214, which forced Otto to retreat and not really again mount any substantive defense of his title of Holy Roman Emperor. We'll meet him one more time in this story, and then he will die in 1218. And that really brings us to a broader consideration of Innocent III's role as Pope, and that is the incredible power and prestige of the papacy at this point in European history. Not that long ago, the papacy was dominated by local Roman families squabbling with each other and installing their sons and nephews as pope to keep it in the family business. The emperor was then called upon to help set things right, and at one point at the Council of Sutri, judged between three different claimants to the papacy, deposed them all, and then got their own candidate elected. That was the emperor Henry III in the early 11th century. And now it's the Pope who's in charge. He's directing who should be Holy Roman Emperor. He's guiding events in Europe. He's deposing some Holy Roman Emperors and imposing his will on others. And he calls bishops and priests to take them to task and to tell them what to do in their own diocese. Everyone looks to the Pope as the true spiritual head of Europe and recognize that his position is one of true authority. And this really is the high watermark for papal power. The battles that St. Gregory VII had with the Emperor Henry IV in asserting papal prerogatives have now borne fruit in Innocent III's impact on the culture of Europe at the time. The papacy was the center of things, and Europe looked to Pope Innocent for good or for ill. And that prestige Innocent used, which brings us to the next major incident in Innocent's papacy, the Fourth Crusade. One of the first priorities of Innocent was to preach the crusade. His first papal bull preached crusade, and in 1198 he dispatched two of his trusted advisors to preach the crusade throughout Europe. He himself gave a tenth of his income to the cause, as did all the cardinals, and he required that all clergy give at least a fortieth to the crusade. His representatives not only preached the crusade, but they worked to bring about the conditions for the crusade to happen. So they managed to arrange a five-year ceasefire between the English and the French so that both could contribute. Likewise, Innocent wrote to the Byzantine emperor, who was still smarting from his poor treatment during the last crusade, not to mention the schism between the East and the West. Negotiations with the Byzantines didn't get that far, but they were important for Innocent, and they're really going to get worse as we go on. But the crusade did begin to form. Now, in previous episodes, I mentioned that there are other podcasts which do a much better job of covering crusading history, especially the battles and the strategy. So seek those out if you want to play by play. We will cover this one from Rome's perspective. And to be totally honest, this crusade was an abject failure and an absolute fiasco from top to bottom. The crusade was organized by B-level crusaders, not by kings as the third crusade was, or even by powerful and seasoned knights as in the first crusade. These guys were the B-team for sure, minor nobles in France and England, the most notable for us being Simon de Montfort, who we'll meet again, who was an English noble, but otherwise people whose names you really don't need to know and don't really need to remember. To start out, they were overly ambitious. They were caught up in the crusading spirit and they were galvanized by the Pope's support. And they thought that everyone in Europe would take the cross, so they planned accordingly. 
they ordered from the Republic of Venice a fleet that would transport 35,000 men for the cost of 85,000 marks, a huge, immense sum. The arrangement was confirmed by the Pope on May 8, 1201, but only on the condition that the Crusaders pledged they would not injure any Christian people along the way. To ensure that that would happen, he sent legates to go along with the Crusaders. Now, a little bit more on why he insisted on this pledge in a bit, but for now, that's part of the deal. So Venice put its entire economy on hold to just build ships for the Crusaders, assuming that a large army would arrive in 1208, and then each knight would help defray the cost of the ships, because the leaders didn't have 85,000 marks. And, as you might suspect, the large army just didn't materialize. The Crusaders couldn't pay. But Venice couldn't just allow this to happen. The debt was so large that it had to be paid, or else the entire economy of Venice would collapse. And so the Crusaders found themselves at an impasse. So the Doge of Venice, a man named Enrico Dondolo, said, That's fine. If you can't pay with money up front, you can help us with the little dispute that we're having with the King of Hungary. Help us to take the city of Zara in modern-day Croatia, and we'll call it even. Now, not only was the King of Hungary a Christian, he himself had pledged to go on the crusade. So this was in total violation of the Pope's requirements, and his delegates hightailed it to Rome to let him know. And so the Pope wrote back, threatening to excommunicate the crusaders if they did this. Now, if you remember, going on crusade is about receiving the indulgence that enables you to to go into um to, to get out of purgatory and so excommunication totally botches the entire purpose about going crusade they were in a tough spot though and they didn't see another option so instead of reconquering the holy land the crusaders started off against another christian company country the crusaders conquered zara though some of them feeling the threat of excommunication backed off and were summarily excommunicated. They then begged the Pope for forgiveness, which after a very strongly worded letter full of all sorts of conditions for repentance, the Pope granted. But in his letter back, he warned them that now that they had to go to fight for the Holy Land and not to get involved in any other issues with other Christians, especially with the Byzantines. Now, there's a reason why he expressly forbade the Crusaders from attacking fellow Christians and especially the Byzantines, because prior to this crusade, the son of a deposed Byzantine emperor, whose name was Alexius, had been making the rounds in Europe asking people to support to put him back on the throne. Now we know for sure that his pitch had been made to some of the leaders of the crusade, and he said that if he who was the really rightful heir and his father had been cruelly deposed by his uncle, and that justice demanded that his father be res restored and his uncle removed. In addition, if they helped him out, he would help them both financially and with troops to aid the crusade, then they'd all go to the Holy Land, and by reconciling the churches and ending the schism between the East and the West. So this guy had been floating around out there, and now he made his way into the crusader camps, and it's easy to see how attractive this would be. The Westerners didn't realize that in the Byzantine world, coups like this happened all the time, and no one really cared if Alexius was the rightful heir, and if his father was cruelly deposed. Emperors were deposed and blinded and had their noses cut off and then returned to power constantly. And it all just depended on who had the power. They thought that the people would welcome back the rightful prince with open arms and they wouldn't even have to really fight. Plus, it solved all their issues with Venice, um, who really encouraged this since they had a big beef against the Byzantines. And off they went. Again, some of the crusaders, most especially Simon de Montfort, left the army at this time, disgusted with what was happening. 
So they did it. Long story short, they stormed Constantinople, they deposed the illegitimate emperor, and placed Alexius on the throne, becoming Alexius IV. But things were not great. First, the money they were expecting to be paid was not there, so Alexius had to begin his rule by taxing the people substantially. They hated that he sided with Rome, and they wanted to try and bring them back into the control of the papacy. And they hated that on top of that, they had brought these Western barbarians to attack their city and just to get himself crowned emperor. Needless to say, Alexius was not popular, and just as the citizens turned against him, he turned against the crusaders who were demanding that he fulfill his end of the deal. And in the end, both he and his father, who were deposed and strangled in prison, and an anti-crusader official, also named Alexius, took the throne and was crowned Alexius V. He tried to kick out the crusaders, who were pretty fed up with this whole situation, and decided to take and sack Constantinople, in April of 1204. So this is horrible. A Christian crusading army sacking a Christian city, soldiers looting from citizens and from churches, women being violated, property being put to flame, relics of saints being stolen left and right. The crusaders then declared a Latin empire of Constantinople and elected Baldwin, the Count of Flanders, one of the crusaders' leaders as the new emperor. He wrote a rather well-worded letter to Pope Innocent, which really massaged the truth to make it more palatable to the Pope. And at first, the Pope was a little excited, but as the horror of the real truth reached him, Innocent was absolutely disgusted, writing, You rashly violated the purity of your vows, and turning your arms not against the Saracens, but against Christians, you applied yourselves not to the recovery of Jerusalem, but to seize Constantinople, preferring earthly to heavenly riches." This was really the end of the failed Fourth Crusade, but it wasn't the only crusade of Innocent's time. Towards the end of his life, Innocent helped organize the Fifth Crusade, which actually made it to Egypt. But most of that we will talk about next episode. There's another crusade, though, during Innocent's time, and this was not in the Holy Land, but in southern France against the Albigensians. The Albigensians, who are also called the Cathars, were a group of Manichaean heretics who popped up every once in a while, particularly in southern France. If you remember from way back, the Manichaeans were dualists. They believed strange doctrines about spiritual, the spiritual realm, and they taught that all spirit was good created by God and all matter was evil and created by an evil God. They had weird moral practices and many killed themselves in order to escape the body and move on to the spirit. And like many New Age teachings today, Albigensian was attractive and you felt like you were really in the know about esoteric truths that the common folks didn't know and in fact couldn't possibly know. Albigensianism had popped up again toward the end of the 12th century, and by the time of Innocent's election, many of the nobles in southern France, including Raymond VI, the Count of Toulouse, had begun to promote Cathar doctrines. Innocent responded to the heresy with a preaching mission, sending two preachers, Raynar and Guy, to help convert the heretics back to the faith. These were then followed by some Cistercian monks and John the Cardinal of St. Prisca. The mission was not very successful at first, until it was joined by two Spanish priests, Diego, the Bishop of Osma, and his friend Dominic Guzman. Diego had gone to Rome to beg Innocent to let him resign his role as bishop and just spent his time preaching to the Albigensians. Now, Innocent would let him do it, but on the way back, Diego and Dominic encountered the papal preachers and decided, hey, you know, he wouldn't let me technically do it, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of here already. I might as well. And so they did some preaching with them. Bishop Diego realized that one of the reasons no one was listening to the Catholic preachers was that they didn't really live the gospel fully. There was just too much pomp and circumstance and finery. So instead, he tried to convince them all to live simply in poverty. 
so that their words and their way of living would be more convincing. And as they did that, they began to have a little more success. But the Albigensians were going to put up a fight. In 1208, Raymond of Toulouse was visited by one of Innocent's legates, Peter of Castelnau, who presented him with the Pope's letter urging him to repent and help stamp out the heresy of the Cathars in his territory. Raymond disagreed with Peter publicly, and at the end of their exchange, threatened him with death. And it's not clear if he directly ordered what came next, but one of his men ran Peter, Peter through with a sword the very next day. This murder of one of the papal ambassadors was the final straw for Innocent. They had tried preaching, they had tried diplomacy, but now the Pope turned to crusading. Innocent declared a crusade against the Albigensians and excommunicated Raymond of Toulouse, and by June of 1209, an army of crusading knights appeared in southern France. This army was led by the Englishman whom we met earlier, Simon de Montfort. And again, we won't go into too much detail, but there was a lot of back and forth between Simon and Raymond, and Raymond's ally, Peter the King of Aragon. Simon took several towns, putting many of the heretics to death, and in some cases butchering whole populations. The first major phase of the crusade came to an end in September of 1213 at the Battle of Muret, where the outnumbered crusader army defeated soundly the combined forces of Toulouse and Aragon. The crusade wouldn't officially end for some time, but this really sealed the deal. Now, as I've said in the past episodes, it's tough to make a judgment historically about these crusades. We look at these events through modern pluralistic eyes, and we see the whole thing oftentimes as monstrous. And indeed, there were parts of both crusades which were shameful. The Fourth Crusade in general was an abject failure, both tactically and morally. The Albigensian Crusade likewise tried to stamp out a heresy with violence, and while it seems like violence was only used when every other option had been already tried, it doesn't justify how the Crusader army treated those captured. Now, there was, of course, a silver lining to this crusade, and that is the parallel attempt to end the Albigensian heresy undertaken by the preaching monks we met already. By 1215, Diego the bishop we had met had already died, but he left his companion Dominic de Guzman in charge of the mission to preach radically to the Albigensians. So Dominic gathered around him six others and set up an organizational structure that would allow them the flexibility to preach while at the same time pursuing radical holiness. This he called the Order of Preachers, or as we know them today, the Dominicans, and he immediately went to Rome to seek the approval of his order from Pope Innocent. He arrived just in time to be present at another huge event in the history of Innocent's papacy, the Fourth Lateran Ecumenical Council. But before we get there, we have another zealous religious founder to meet. In 1209, a small group of poor penitent men from Umbria came to Rome to seek permission from Pope Innocent to found their own religious order. The group was led by Francesco Bernardone, the son of a local cloth merchant in Assisi, who had renounced his family and lived a life of radical poverty and penance. His life was found to be attractive, and once a small group had gathered around him, he set off for Rome to have the approval of the Pope for their way of life. They called themselves the Little Brothers, or we might translate them, the Friars Minor. And of course, we know them today as the Franciscans. In Rome, they managed to secure the audience of with Cardinal Giovanni di San Paolo, who was a Benedictine monk and a close collaborator with the Pope. He immediately took to St. Francis and presented him to Pope Innocent formally. Pope Innocent, the story goes, did not at first promise anything to St. Francis. It was too early to give them formal papal approval. But apparently later that week, Pope Innocent had a dream in which the Lateran Basilica, representing the whole church, was collapsing. And in the dream, the young Umbrian friar he had just met was preventing its collapse and propping up the whole edifice. After this dream, Pope Innocent formally approved the Franciscans, though to be fair, we don't actually have any documents backing this up. It won't be until his successor that we have formal papal bulls establishing the Friars Minor, 
or for that matter, the, the order of preachers. Nevertheless, this is a big deal. Nothing will do more to change the reform of the church over the coming centuries than this new experiment of friars. Friars lived radical poverty for the sake of the gospel, but unlike monks and canons before them, they had a greater freedom, and they were not restrained behind strict enclosures, and they didn't make promises of stability. So we find very early on friars everywhere, walking the highways of medieval Europe, preaching the crusade, preaching and teaching and begging. Just as St. Dominic worked to end the Albigensian crusade through preaching, St. Francis smuggled himself on a ship to Egypt to try and end the crusade in the Holy Land the same way. Friars were everywhere in a very short time, and the insight that both St. Francis and St. Dominic had was that radically living the gospel was a much more effective mode of evangelization and would bear fruit. But to return to Pope Innocent, up to this point we've talked mainly about big external uses of papal power, determining the Holy Roman Emperor, Crusade, etc. Now we need to see the other large focus of his pontificate, which was the reform of the church and the clergy. Now, some of this work was being done through groups like the Franciscans, the Dom Dominicans, or before them, just shortly, the Trinitarians, whose founder, St. John of DeMatha, was approved by Innocent in 1198. The most important effort, though, in this regard began on April 19, 1213, when Innocent called the bishops of the world to assemble in Rome two years later for an ecumenical council, which today we call the Fourth Lateran Council. The Fourth Lateran Council dealt with many of the issues we've already discussed. The defeated Otto tried to make one last appeal to be reinstated as Holy Roman Emperor and was unsuccessfully sent representatives to plead his case at the council. The Crusades were discussed, the Albigensian heresy was condemned, simony was again condemned, and the clergy were urged to live clerical celibacy faithfully and the practice what they preached. And with all these new religious orders popping up, the council declared that henceforth religious founders could only use previously approved rules of life. That's what prompted St. Dominic to turn to the Augustinian rule when he founded the Dominicans, which is approved before the council was completed. The council also defined fully the number of the sacraments and required for the first time explicitly that every Catholic confess their sins once a year to a priest. There were some not-so-great parts, too. The council required that Jews wear distinctive clothes to let Christians know that they were not Christians, so they didn't mistakenly marry them. But the major legacy of the Fourth Lateran Council was one of reform of the church's practices and articulation of the faith. It was one of the largest ecumenical councils to date, with a huge representation from across Europe and the Christian world. Now, After the council, Innocent went north to try and bring peace between Pisa and Genoa to help promote what would become the Fifth Crusade, but on his way he fell ill from fever. And on July 16, 1216, he died in the Umbrian town of Perugia. Now that night, his body was robbed of his vestments, and the next morning he was found nearly completely naked. He was buried in Perugia at the Cathedral of San Lorenzo, but centuries later in 1891, his body was transferred to a tomb in the Lateran Basilica in Rome, where it remains today. Now, let's conclude this episode just with a little recap or a little analysis of this papacy. As we said earlier, Innocent III was the high watermark of papal power over secular rulers. And we shouldn't finish this episode without first noting that while a Europe governed by the Pope seems like the ideal for Christendom, in practice it would not last. This is the high watermark for a reason. After Innocent's pontificate, the water starts to recede, and the challenge of how the Pope navigates both the spiritual and the secular world will reappear. Indeed, that might be the secondary theme of this podcast. From the very beginning, the Popes have had to navigate this other realm. Where do they fit in with secular power? Are they subservient? Are they merely separate? Are they superior at, to the point that they can depose and crown emperors at will? 
Innocent's pontificate came the closest to that latter position, and several of his successors will try to reassert their prerogatives along that same line, but none of them will fully succeed. The first of those successors is Pope Honorius III, who will pick up where Innocent left off, but more on him next time. Thank you for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Please rate and review us. That's a big help to all of us. Thank you, and God bless you.